This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I'm about to interview an old friend, Mo Rocca. Now, you all know Mo Rocca. He's everywhere. He's like crabgrass. Everybody knows Mo Rocca. God and his universe all know Mo Rocca. He's, first of all, always on CBS TV's Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley. And he's an award winner. Everybody's an award winner, only me not. But at least I'm good enough to speak to Mo Rocca. Listen, it just occurred to me some things I wanted to tell you. Besides Westerns, everything is coming back. TV series, antique movies, old Broadway shows. Now, Monopoly. In days of yore, before chess became a TV series, non-Chinese yentas were playing mahjong, and the big board game was then Monopoly. Monopoly actually never really went away, but it faded about when skirt hems hit gynecological length. After our soon-coming election day comes its new big push back. Monopoly's brand-new face will appear in a brand-new reduced form, still with the dice and paper money. But now the new setup board for this newest idea of Monopoly is going to be all Brooklyn, with the Brooklyn borough's local landmarks, eateries, etc. And those whose names shall only be whispered are hoping to grab some get-out-of-jail-free cards. Hey, let the games begin. One more thing I feel I should mention. I keep reading that they say they're going to try Robert Durst for yet another murder. The man is already serving a life sentence. He's already got CV. He's already now very not well in a medical unit. He's extremely weak. Nobody, including me, cares about him. But this is to tell authorities, you're a lifetime too late. They'll never make it. I know because I interviewed him a small while back. I sat with Robert Durst on an earlier murder matter. He's had a few murders. This was his gruesome Texas trial in 2021, where he hacked up a body and was found, if you can believe it, not guilty. Hours after that verdict, he called me, collect, from his Galveston cell, and he then actually said to me, he was annoyed. Irritated was his actual word. Irritated that he had hacked up a body? Irritated, he said to me, that they didn't believe him at the beginning. This right now convicted murderer of another body actually told me exactly two hours after the verdict in his home where he was found not guilty, he said to me, you know, I don't think that that was a very nice thing the DA said to me. What thing? He said, I thought that was nasty. 
I thought he'd be fair afterward. That was nasty. Nasty, what are you talking about? He said this guy who hacked up another human being and was irritated because the DA said he didn't like him. Really? But the jailers liked him. They fed him a turkey dinner after he came back home. After he came back home behind bars. And it's where I learned the difference between jail and prison. Jail is where you're taken pending trial. Prison is where they put you after conviction. Listen, a piece of gossip. Grammy winner Jimmy Webb. Remember, by the time I get to Phoenix and Wichita lineman, this guy began his divorce battle with his wife, Pat, of 22 years. He began the divorce battle in 1996. He has since remarried, but the battle of his ex, the divorce, is still going on since 1996. Her utilities have been stopped. Her house foreclosed. Her van repossessed. She thinks it's because of his new wife, who is now his manager. Listen, maybe he needs those few bucks to send to Biden. Who knows? Do I know? I don't know. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, everybody knows Mo Rocca. Okay, Mo Rocca, what is your real name? Well, my father in the late 60s when I was born was the ambassador to Mozambique. And so um, that is where my name comes from. You mean you would have been named Mozambique Raka? I made that up. I just wanted to see how you'd react. And I thought I'm you listening. Were, you know, I'm making the mistake. I'm listening to you. My mother was a hippie. And when I was born, she was hitchhiking across the Mojave Desert. I know this is getting worse. What was your name at birth? Real name? Maurice. I yeah. better, better you should go back to Mozambique. I think you're right. And the thing <laughs> is, and now, you know, I used to say like, well, at least there's Maurice Chevalier in that, you know, singing in, in the movie Gigi. But now, thank heaven for little girls. I mean, is a little creepy. So he's been canceled. So I can no longer use Maurice Chevalier as somebody so that I could sort of lean on to say, look, my name's kind of cool. Your name is semi-cool. What, what it would have been Maurice or something like that? Yeah, Ma- no, Maurice is my given name, um, but but I I think I would have preferred Morris. Because remember Morris the cat? I loved those commercials. Isn't that interesting? It so rarely comes up in conversation. So <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, is Rocca your real name? Yes, my father was Italian. Oh. So I'm half Italian, half Colombian. My mother's Colombian. Okay, so how do you do all these interviews? Aren't you sick of Zooming? I mean, really? Hate it. I had a Zoom-related injury. I'm not kidding you. Over the, uh, starting in the summer of 2020, three months into the pandemic, I injured my left vocal cord. I got something called a granuloma. It was really, really rough, and, I, and, and my voice was breaking. Um, and it's because of all the Zooming, because I don't know if you experienced this. When, you're, when we were all on Zoom at first, we all thought, we needed to talk like that. It, almost like we were, you know, speaking with 
someone in Taiwan in the 1970s. Remember long distance calls back then? You know, you, you, you talk like that. And it put a lot of strain on my voice. And so I had a Zoom-related injury. I have never yet done a Zoom because, A, I look lousy on Zoom. Mm. B, it comes in too close. Mm. C, I feel like I look awful. So I will not do Zoom. It's all about the filter, Cindy. You could look – you need the Marlena Dietrich filter, which they have no, on Zoom. you also Zoom. need Vaseline on the lens. Well, right. That's what I mean. Yeah. And, well, you know. What? You can put that on? There are all kinds of filters. You could look like a 1930s film star if, you know, there, there are filters for that. You could, you know, and you look great anyway. I'm looking at you right now. I mean, your hair looks terrific. <laughs> really. What about the rest of me? You stopped there? Oh, what about the face? I'm going from the top down. Help me. Help I just me. got Don't to just the face there. and the face is fantastic. Forget it. Okay. Working now, schlepping around. Isn't it more difficult, Mo? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, look, as much as I hate Zoom, it makes it, – it, it, it allows you to avoid airports, which is a nice thing because airports are just lousy. I mean, they're just they're, – yeah, I don't enjoy them at all. Um, but uh, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Yeah, the mask on, the mask off, all that. It's, it's a little tedious. But, you know, you muddle through. Didn't you – I remember speaking to you once. Didn't you once take you cart your mother along to an interview in the Catskills with Melissa Gilbert? I went up to see Melissa Gilbert in the Catskills. I wanted to believe it was the prairies of Minnesota because of Little House on the Prairie. So it was more like – it was more like, you know, the weekend house in the Catskills rather than Little House on the Prairie. Um, wonderful, and she's terrific. Um, but no, I brought my mother with me um, to New Hampshire to do a piece about our 14th president, Franklin Pierce, because I like um, doing pieces on obscure and lousy presidents from the way past. And That means uh, Biden? You're going to be doing Biden at some point? Okay. I only deal with – I need 20 years to assess – the the the, Could you hurry the worth it up of with Biden. Uh, you you want me to fast track that? Listen, <laughs> Franklin Pierce was a wreck. He was, according to Harry Truman, our best looking president. I don't know how Harry Truman got to be the arbiter of good looking presidents, but that's what Harry Truman said. But otherwise, he was a wreck. He died of dropsy, which basically means he drowned in alcohol. He was such a big drinker. Listen, I don't know who the hell discusses Franklin Pierce these days. How did you manage to schlep in Franklin Pierce? Because for CBS Sunday Morning, I like doing obscure presidential history because I think it's a break from current presidential history. Okay, it gives people a break, and you know, you look back at the past and you go, "Wow, we got through that. We can get through anything." Knock oh, on wood. Uh, maybe this interview is one of the things we can get through. So I remember you. Listen, I remember talking to you. You're always I remember you. some. No, no, I've seen. You. I heard this song. Forget it's a beautiful it. Beautiful song. Yeah. Uh, calm yourself. I remember you went somewhere, someplace to Kansas or North Dakota. I went Dakota to North some, Dakota. For, for Peggy Lee? For Peggy Lee's 101st birthday. I mean, I had to honor it somehow. And so I went there with her fantastic granddaughter, who's sort of the keeper of the, of the flame, uh, for a piece that has yet to air, but will air about the legacy of <laughs> That was of like Peg 12 years ago you did it. Look, we're on a grad school schedule at CBS Sunday morning. It's sort of like, you know, you'll go down in a producer's office, there'll be a stack of books about Monet's water lilies, and they'll say, wait, didn't you start that in 2005? And they say, yeah, but Monet's still dead. Nothing's going to change, and the water lilies are still pretty. And the same for Peggy Lee. Her legacy lives on. Well, okay. Do you do anybody who's alive? Yeah. In fact, I do, I do two people. No, 
I, don't get me wrong. I love dead people, but I also like people that are alive. Um, I just did Sonny Curtis. Sonny Curtis, people may not recognize the name. He was an original bandmate of Buddy Holly, but you really know him because he wrote and sang the Mary Tyler Moore theme song. How will also you make dead. it on your own? Right. And, and basically what? everyone from the show is dead, except for Betty White. She's alive. Do you specialize in people who are gone? Uh, Listen, in my past life, I was an actuary. So I'm always (laughs) – so. but it it got a little boring, so I decided to turn it into a TV career. Tell me me one of these stories of when you schlep to these places. What's it it like when you go to a a never-never land? If you go to the home of an obscure 19th century president – you will find people there, the docents, and I love these people, people that are generally doing it on a volunteer basis who are fully committed to the legacy of someone yeah, most yeah, people I don't know, care I about. Yeah. And there's something incredibly <laughs> endearing about that because they just by virtue of their commitment and their volunteerism are keeping a piece of real history alive. So when I was at the Franklin Pierce house, I got to talk with this woman who pointed out that Franklin Pierce introduced perforated postage stamps. Before Franklin Pierce, you had to cut the postage stamp, but he introduced perforation. He also helped um, lead this country into civil war. But, you know, there are goods and bads to everyone. Uh, and, you know, and then I met a woman at the James Buchanan House, our only bachelor, put quotes around bachelor, president in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Or is it Lancaster? It's Lancaster. You know how many people come up, bring this up in conversation? James Buchanan? <laughs> I mean, every day when I go to dinner, one of the things we discuss is James Buchanan. And the fact that everyone knows that he was our first gay president and how terrible Not everybody knows that well, you could bachelor, stop 12 people bachelor. on the street and they don't know it they don't even know who franklin pierce was they don't know and it's a real shame they think he's they confuse him with franklin mint and you know especially if you're of a certain age and james buchanan they only know from welcome back cotter because the sweat hogs went to james why do buchanan you high school. to see these people why not this because at i least get to keep... five alive people in this Be- studio right now if you at sh- least if i schlep i get to keep the miles Okay, that's good. Oh, that's good. How do you work at home with your partner during CV? Well, wait, during the pandemic, you mean, or or just in general? Uh, Well, well, in general is something else. Well, no, there are three (laughs) rooms, so we can just sort of, we can, so. You make that much money? That I have three rooms, I know, right? Isn't it amazing? And one of the rooms is half taken up with a giant bust of Grover Cleveland. It really is. I went on Antiques Roadshow to get it appraised. It's worth nothing. Um, But, um, uh uh, the um no you just you just figure it out and then you move rooms so that you can't hear each other on conference calls and things like that. How do you do it? Seriously, no joke. People are fed up to hear with pandemic and masks, and they can't go out. Do you go out for dinner? Do you go to restaurants? What do you go to theater? How do how do you live? Well, because most of your people are dead anyway. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and so the um. <laughs> and, and and you know the great thing about dead people, Cindy, they the don't best complain, thing, yeah, they don't have publicists, and that just makes life so easy. I mean, right? Um, uh, well, I mean, I'm going to theater every night because I'm in a play, and that's not meant as a segue. But no, I'll get into. No, this I know, I know, I'm not pushing. I'm not pushing. Yeah, well, please, okay, okay, okay. Woody Allen, I don't mean to bring him up in a Whoa. conversation, but he once told me during the pandemic. I said, "What are you doing?" He says, "I'm hiding under the bed." 
Judge Judy says, I'm buying stuff I don't even want that I won't even wear. I mean, we're all doing bizarre things. Yeah. Look, I finally signed up for one of those grocery services. I think fresh, whatever, I, I direct, fresh direct. And I didn't realize I checked the box that said I would accept substitutions if they didn't have certain foodstuffs. So I ordered an array of things and I ended up getting about 15 bags of frozen mangoes. Okay, and I still have frozen mangoes in my freezer. From, and that, that's the legacy of the pandemic is I have mango poisoning. I've had so – remember when, when Jeremy Piven said that he had sushi poisoning and he had to drop out of a play on Broadway because he had so much sushi? Well, I could drop out of, of what I'm doing right now because of all the mangoes I've been eating. Actually, the trouble is you're a very boring interview. That's the problem. I know. That, I'm going to try to overcome that. Now, tell me about this cockamamie thing you're in. It's fairy cakes. The name alone is upsetting. Fairy cakes? I know. You're in this fakakta thing? And it doesn't wait, involve wait, just, just a second. I have to... What is that? It's an off-Broadway whatever <laughs> making you... It's world premiere, you should excuse that phrase, at the Greenwich House Theater, right. which is where? The Greenwich House Theater is at 27 Barrow Street. It's just off of 7th Avenue. I always called it the Barrow Street Theater. Kirk Douglas got his start there, okay? Not recently. What? <laughs> Not recently. Don't you know anything that happened recently? I, I, I do know that Kirk Douglas died not too long ago. So, listen, it, it is an original play. It's a comedy by Douglas Carter Bean, who's written some fantastic comedies for, for, the, for the stage. And, uh, and I'm one of 12 cast members, um, and I'm working with some terrific actors on – a play that's really a mashup of classic fairy tales like Pinocchio, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And he put them in a blender with some bananas because this thing is bananas. And, you know, and so you just got to come and drink the, it in. The Winter blender. Garden, it's not going to play. <laughs> it is, it is, it is not, though I was a huge fan of uh, Cats when that was at the Winter Garden. Remember that? Yes, I remember everything. I remember everything except the dead people you keep interviewing. Yes, I remember it. Well, back to Marie Chevalier. Oh, okay. Didn't he sing that? How do I know? Okay. I'm, I'm talking about live Was people. he a Nazi, by the way? I think he. I think there was some question about that, that he was right in France during World War II. But I don't want to malign him. It, well, that would that would be nice. I mean, I would take anything you'll say right now. Tell me about fairy cakes. What do you, pardon the expression, play in it? I play Geppetto, as in the Pinocchio story. Now, this is not the Geppetto we grew up with. This is a vulnerable, a soulful, a sexy Geppetto. This is a new Geppetto. Like the old Geppetto, right, That from that cartoon in 1940, that Geppetto is a total zero. I mean, he's he, he makes terrible toys. They, most of them have been recalled by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. He spends half of his day chasing around a sociopathic puppet, a congenital liar. Um, he's, he's kind of a loser. This puppet is more – and frankly, I'm surprised they didn't Are cast – Are you just the voice of a puppet? No, 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 no. I, I'm Geppetto. Sorry. Sorry. I'm, I'm Geppetto, right? Geppetto, the maker, the, okay. the person that brings Geppetto – Pinocchio to life. This Geppetto, I'm frankly surprised that Javier Bardem is not in this role. Um, so, I mean, I would have cast Javier Bardem. They chose to go with me. And when they make the Geppetto biopic, you know they're going to dump the, the, the stage actor. It always happens. So I'll get dumped, and they'll probably cast Javier Bardem. But, uh, but until then, I'm enjoying really remaking this role. 
I'm I'm having difficulty following you. What's Javier Bardem got to do with Geppetto? Which watch has this got to do with fairy cakes? Which watch has this right. to do with this cockamamie off-Broadway show and, that you're telling me is going to play the Winter Garden? And these are all <laughs> legitimate questions. I, I'll grant you that. So the play is a comedy. It's zany, but it's also poignant with all these classic fairy tale characters, including Geppetto, whom I play. Uh, and um, finding love and fulfillment in life with fabulous costumes. Half the cast play fairies, and oh. they have these amazing wings, like beautiful costumes, like costumes that would knock your socks off, uh, and a beautiful set. Um, and it's just a, it's it, it's 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 um it's uh, like an amuse bouche, or it's more than that. It's it's fizzy. It's fun. It's delightful. It's a perfect holiday entertainment. Right. And- <laughs> I can tell you're convinced that oh you're about to lie God. down. And if you weren't in it, would you be saying all this BS to us? <laughs> I think so. Maybe yes. slower. Maybe slower. <laughs> How did you get this part, you you idiot? How did you get this part? Well, the celebrated playwright Douglas Carter Bean called me up and he said, I know this is coming out of the blue, but I think you'd be a sensation in this role. I think you are the I... person to play Geppetto. Now, at first I thought, Geppetto, he's like this old guy. Have I really aged into the role? The pandemic really accelerated the aging process, I guess. And uh, But then I read the script, and I said, this is actually very funny, which I expected from him, but also very, very sweet. Uh, and um, and it's lovely. Like, like a classic comedy, you have all these people coming together at the end and finding fulfillment, and, uh, and it's lovely. And they're singing and there's dancing, and the great Jackie Hoffman, uh, wonderful stage comedian, um, uh, does a full-on flamenco dance at one point. So yeah, well, you'll excuse me. So, <laughs> did, did you audition for this? No, I listen, Cindy. I don't audition. I mean, you know, take me as I am, or or don't or don't call me and offer me a uh, you know, a part in your new play about Geppetto and other classic fairy tale characters. No, I didn't. I didn't audition, but I still, if I need to, I have 16 bars if I only had a brain. That's my up-tempo. And long before I knew you from Bells Are Ringing is my ballad. So if you need me to audition, I have those songs ready you to know, go. Not much of this often comes up in conversation, the stuff that you, we're discussing right I know. now. Did you ever interview Judy Holiday? by the way? Not lately. <laughs> she was great in Bells Are Ringing. Yeah, uh, how does this come? What did I ask you? That elicited a question about Judy. I'm losing my mind. Well, just as I said that the ballad I could sing if I had to audition for a musical is from Bells Are Ringing, which she started. Well, how did you get this part? Why you to be Geppetto? I think apparently I exude Geppetto energy. And I'd like to think that's a good thing. Listen, I don't even own a mallet and a chisel. So I don't make my own wooden toys. But apparently... I seem like somebody who could, and and great. And maybe if I get an HGTV show out of this, you know, some kind of craft show, that would be great. But Douglas Carter Bean felt that I was the person to re- remake the role of Geppetto. This is a Geppetto reboot. <laughs> a reboot made of wood, I guess. Anyway. How do you memorize lines? Well, that's interesting. So my dear friend, Tony nominee Jennifer Samard advised me on all things regarding this. And she said, take your iPhone, record all of your lines and the cue lines, the lines that other characters say right before your lines, and record all of those sequentially. Then 
take a walk and repeat them back to yourself. Like you hear the cue line and then you say your line at the same time that you're saying it on the recording. And I would walk the streets of Greenwich Village where I live doing that like a crazy person. So people would see me just late at night, you know, mumbling, 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 Pinocchio, Pinocchio, come back to me, (laughs) Pinocchio, Pinocchio, come back to me. But, you know, it's New York and and the crazy quotient has risen during the pandemic. So I think I fit in nicely. Isn't this iambic? Pentameter? It is. It is. It is. Explain to people who may not understand what that does on stage. It every line is ten syllables, and these are rhyming couplets, so everything rhymes. So if you're a fan of rhyme, (laughs) then you're going to love this. Um, And I think if you're a fan of reason, you'll love it too. But it's this. So the whole thing basically rhymes. So you'll say. uh, you know, life is a struggle. Each day is a test. So now to bed and find some blessed rest. That doesn't rhyme well. <laughs> I mean, I it, it, blame it on me right now. <laughs> I, you have to lean I'm into even the rhyme. Sorry, I invited you here because I just don't understand what you're telling well, me altogether. Cindy, I thought that this entire interview was going to rhyme, so I'm a little let down. <laughs> what? Where did you? Now that I speak to you and I know you. Where did you learn acting? Uh, in my bathroom mirror. I mean, I don't, you know, um, where did I, I did, I did theater as a kid. I even went to an acting program at the, the North Carolina School of the Arts when I was in high school during the summers, which was an amazing experience. Then when I came to New York after graduating from college, I was cast in the Southeast Asia tour of the musical Grease. I played – this is true. <laughs> Southeast Asia. Yes, and I went to Jakarta, music. and I went to Jakarta, which you know well. I do. I of live course. there. I yes, live you there. live there. Um, and uh, no Sukarno's showed up for of this performance. Nobody's going to show up where you're working, so keep going. <laughs> uh, it, uh, that, that may be the case. But I thought, come on. I mean we came all the way from New York, and you would have thought like a Sahardo or a Sukarno or a something would have shown up. And, uh, and so I played Duty, the youngest of the greasers. We went to Hong Kong, Singapore, and um, and to Jakarta on this tour in 1993, uh, and that was very exciting. And then the next year, I did Paper Mill Playhouse. I did a production of of um, South Pacific there. So I done I I'd done some theater right out of college, and uh, and then a few years ago, I did the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee on Broadway. But Mo Rocker is mostly known as being a humorist. Not that you are on this particular program. I know. We well, know I that. Can't, you know, I can't pretty turn it boring on like and flat. That. But you're a humorist. Where do you humor? Um, I, I'll humor anyone who gives me a shot, <laughs> who's, who's willing to listen to me you're for more than a couple minutes. You're humoring on CBS TV every Sunday. Yes, on CBS Sunday morning, which, you know, is a very civilized and I think – um, humane program and allows me to do serious things and allows me to do more humorous things and a mixture of the two. You do a lot of people who are gone or who are old hat. Or, or be, I, I don't mean that. I don't mean that to be not nice, yeah. but it's nice. It's very nice. But Here's why the thing. do you do that? No, I'll tell you why I do it. I have found, with all due respect, that a lot of young stars they don't know anything. They don't know anything, and no. they don't have anything to say. And the best of them know that they don't have anything to say. I've had occasions where I've sat across from young, very talented stars, and to their great credit, they're kind of, they'll sort of sheepishly say like, 
you know, I don't I don't have that much to say. Like and and I kind of appreciate that because it's true. They don't. I mean, a few do. Well, not even a few. It's hard for me to think of them. The older actors, authors, you know, personalities or whatever have lived experience. I mean, they just have more to say. They're just more interesting. I mean, you know, and uh, and so I always prefer that. I also prefer to find people that I consider undervalued stocks, people who haven't gotten the attention that maybe they should and that an audience mem- that someone at home will watch and go, wow, this is really interesting or I'm really surprised or or wow, she's really cool or oh, yeah, where has he been? And, you know, I did Russ Tamblin, who's had a really wild, crazy life, who was in you know the original West Side Story as a riff. His daughter is a star, Amber Tamblin. But then he fell in hard times and then ended up in Japanese movies and exploitation films, biker movies, and then became a really respected visual artist and then came back with Twin Peaks. I mean, that's an interesting life of ups and downs. Well, somewhere I was having a discussion with someone and I mentioned Marlene Dietrich and they said, who's that? So I thought, I'm going to kill myself. You know, so exactly what you're saying is what's happening. But isn't that what happens with everyone who, as we go on and spend more years, we know things that they, the new people cannot know? We, I think what's sobering is to realize how quickly people are forgotten. In the early 2000s, one of our correspondents, Rita Braver, interviewed Nora Ephron about a play she had written about Mary McCarthy and Lillian Hellman and their, their rivalry. And Rita said to Nora, how do you want to be remembered? And Nora Ephron laughed and said, remembered? No one's going to remember me. And she said, you know, she said, Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy were incredibly famous. And she said, I've written this play now less than 20 years after they're both gone and no one knows who they are. Cut to a few years ago in my office working with very young, smart people. I brought up the name of Nora Ephron. She'd been dead only for three years. None of them knew who she was. I know. I'm having that happen to me. Very yeah. few people are really remembered. And it's interesting who is. I did something on Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn, for some reason, and I think for a good reason, is remembered. There are girls in college now that have her posters on their wall. But she's one of a very small group of people. And as you remember, Audrey Hepburn's career was actually quite short. And there were bigger stars. But there's something that punched through, and she's remembered, the image. But other people that were the biggest, you know, you know, the number of people who have no idea who Johnny Carson is. I mean, that's kind of unthinkable, right? Audrey Hepburn, I think, might have been partly from fashion because yep. she was super thin. Right. And, and she she evoked a certain look. Right. Which is coming back in some way. They're showing it in, in, in magazines and things like that because there's a guy who's just written a book now uh, on um, Princess Diana. Mm-hmm. He was her voice coach. And he says there is a resurgence in the look, in the slenderness, in the schmatas, and all the rest of it. So maybe that has something to do with why Audrey Hepburn is a perennial. And I think the other reason, my father was a big Japanophile and spoke Japanese, and he used to say, you know, Audrey Hepburn was like a religion in Japan and still is a real important image. And he said, well, because of her shape, her figure, her look, there's something kind of international about it. But yeah, how do you going back to fairy cakes for the minute? I was just thinking because I'm, I'm sort of unready to go into big yeah. theaters. 
How do you protect yourself with CV backstage or on stage or, or singing into somebody else's throat? Well, we all – everyone had to be vaccinated and were tested every three days, and so far so good. I mean I feel fortunate. It's a small house. It's fewer than 200 seats, and it's – you know they are um, very stringent, and I think it's for the best that obviously every cat, every audience member has to show proof of vaccination, but they are – everyone is masked, the nose and mouth. And listen, in the cast and crew, there have been no – breakthrough infections and we are tested every every three days and uh and there have been no complaints from the audience there have been no you know we haven't heard like oh i you know three days after i went to see your show i got sick so so far so good i think we have the advantage of being a smaller theater it's also a big airy space so i think the big broadway theaters and i wish them the best of luck have a bigger challenge, you know, 1,500 okay, seats. I'm getting ready to get rid of you. No, but, that's fine. Right. I understand. But, but before... I lasted, but I had a good run here. <laughs> but before I throw you the hell out, which I would like to do, basically, <laughs> you once told me about you were taking your mother. Did she come to see you in this cockamamie show? She's going to. I just took her for her flu shot two days ago. She had her booster shot a couple of weeks before that. Um but – and the flu shot – you know, it's so funny. I took uh, my mother – She, God, is she going to be upset if I say how old she is? But anyway, it starts at the nine. With an I? A nine, and it ends with three, and she's in great health. And she um, – she's 903. No, she um, – and so I took her for the for the flu shot at Dwayne Reed – at Walgreens. And it's just so funny because there were a lot of people there, and then one woman was there with a home health aide who asked my mother how old she was and was shocked at how good she looks and blah, blah, blah. And the whole thing took about a half an hour. And as we were walking back, my mother turned to me and she said, that was an amazing experience. And I thought, well, right, going to get a flu shot? But I don't know. It just – it's it's the little things, right? It's kind of you know spending time with family members and kind of stuff like that. Is, Before I show you yeah, the hell yeah, out, yeah. what's coming up for a CBS Sunday show? That you're on, unfortunately. I know. Um, <laughs> I think either my Franklin Pierce piece, which which I know how excited you are about. Oh my it. god, so I'm trying your, to control myself. I know. Yeah. Or or yeah. it's going to be my Sonny Curtis piece, or I've got a um, a piece about the making of Sunday in the Park with George, where I interviewed James Lapine, Bernadette Peters, and Mandy Patinkin, and that was a heck of a lot of fun. I'm I'm sure. I'm I'm trying to get excited. You were also, excuse me, I was a director of the Miss Universe beauty pageant for years before I went on to the New York Post. You were a judge at a beauty contest. What the hell do you know about judging a beauty contest? Nothing, but my <laughs> personal trainer at the time, and you know, listeners can't see how rippling I am. Oh, my God. personal trainer at the time <laughs> was the trainer for the contestants of Miss USA, with the Miss USA pageant. Um, great trainer and a real horn dog. So I think he really loved that job. And then he said to me, you know, um, he said, if you're um, if you want to if you want to judge this, you might get a kick out of it. I'll recommend you. And so I got a job doing that. And who's Betsy? Who's the um, the fashion designer? Betsy, uh, you know, Betsy, B-E, but she spells it B-E-T-S-E-Y. She's a famous fashion designer. Well, she's so famous. How come you don't know her I know. Her I can't name. remember her name. It's yeah. anyway. And and I had to actually. She didn't understand how to use the tabulator, and you know the election results were almost thrown off, right? Like she almost accidentally, you know, got Miss Utah named Miss USA when 
It so was, far, I'm not thrilled with your whole interview. Yeah, go ahead. I know. This isn't a great story. But at the time, it was a very stressful moment because we were live on TV and Miss Connecticut eventually won. I don't really care. I mean, I'm just give You have me listeners in Connecticut. Not to you. So. <laughs> All in Connecticut. Just Connecticut, keep All listening. I'm, I stuck up for you. Utah could have won that pageant, if All not three. for me. What's coming up? Wait, wait, wait. I have one. Halloween, no, Halloween, we will go. Thanksgiving or Groundhog Day. You got anything to say before I throw you off? Which I'm no. looking forward to. No, I mean, to. I love the movie Groundhog Day. Um, no, forget that. Yeah. What about Thanksgiving? You got any anything or a holiday story? Anything? Oh, a holiday story. Well, I'm, I'm going to do for our food show, our annual food show on CBS Sunday Morning, I'm doing a story on the history of the automat. And... Um, Remember the automat? Oh, let me tell you a story. Back a thousand years ago, when I was a kid, Jack Benny had a black tie party. The first black tie party I had ever gone to in the automat. In the automat. And he gave us, because Joey Adams was my husband and, and, and Joey knew Jack Benny. So I came along and he gave everyone a roll of quarters and half dollars and everything, and we put it in, and we got the lousy cockamamie pies and the all the rest. The automat was such a great thing. All right, now you were about to tell me. you. you That's, to- I, I'm riveted by this because we're just in the in the planning stages of it right now. Do you remember by any chance was it there was, there was one on 3rd Avenue. There was a big Times Square automat. Yes. If it was a Times Square one, I bet that you went to. I don't anyway, know. I don't. That's know. what. How great that you went to a black tie event yes. at an automat. What are you doing with this thing? What are you doing? So with the uh, this woman made. A, I can't remember her name. She made a documentary about it. That's that's just coming out. And about then automats. A, yeah, and then there's a book. Horn and Hardart were the 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 owners of the big automats, and I guess uh, one of the descendants of of the Hardart family, I guess, has written a book about it. So yeah, so so um, and I think I don't know this. I haven't gotten deeply into it enough yet, but I think it might be coming back because they're talking about how restaurants are going to become more automated now with it's robots. Great, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. Do, would you mind very much right now, Mo Rocca, if I threw you off? That's great. I, I, I've, I've had go. enough of you. No, that's fine. And I've <laughs> got to go eat anyway. Do you know if there's an automat near here? Oh, no, they're oh, not very back yet. Funny, but there's Smith and Walensky across the street, which will cost you a lot more I than a quarter. Or yes. Well, Do you, you have it in a, your budget for the You WABC have a lot budget? of money. You're making from fairy cakes, you must be making $30 a week. That off Broadway. <laughs> Listen, I just have to tell you quickly after opening night on the street, somebody yelled, Mo, a car is coming. And I thought they meant a car is coming for you. And it was like, no, no this is at you. Exactly. This is off Broadway. <laughs> Mo, a car is coming. Get the hell out of the way. Mo, so do you mind getting off here? Yeah, I had I, enough of you. I, this was great. This was terrific. And uh, yeah. I was wonderful. You were fair. Get away. Get away. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it's me, Cindy Adams. Same Cindy Adams who harangues you in my column Monday through Thursday, four times a week, every week in the New York Post. You're stuck with me. So pay attention because despite international, worldly, global efforts to get rid of me, I'm still here. So. Listen, for the family who lost their wife and mother, and for Alec Baldwin, we, we all feel terrible. There are many times a celebrity has had a tough go. Simon Cowell's home 
was visited by a serial burglar. As a teenage gas station attendant in Queens, Ray Romano was robbed twice at gunpoint. His mother made him quit, saying, Work at a bank. That way, when you're robbed, it'll at least make news. Sean Penn moved to San Francisco once, when his then-missus, Robin Wright, was carjacked. Christmas shopping in London? Phil Collins, his wife and son, were mugged, stripped of cash and credit cards. Her empty purse landed in a back street garbage bag. Wyclef Jean remembers, quote, I was in a Burger King when them bad cats arrived and we got stuck up. Miley Cyrus's estate in L.A. was visited by thieves. Aidan Quinn, walking in a not-lush neighborhood, almost got totally done in by a street gang. They obviously wanted to kill us, he says. Jessica Simpson took a block of 15 rooms once at a hotel in Florida. They were all broken into. Ashton Kutcher, in his own California restaurant, was robbed of cash, checks, valuables from a safe, and bottles of expensive wine. Rapper Foxy Brown's earlobe was torn when her diamond earring was pulled off and her handbag heisted. Damon Wyans himself got busted and into a lockup when, a lot of stardom ago, he got stealing, he got caught stealing a taxi cab. April Levine had a stalker arrested after a year-long hunt. Lisa Kudrow, who'd been followed a few times, one time drove herself to the nearest police station. Repeatedly stalked Nev Campbell, hired bodyguards. Naomi Campbell kept a bottle of Jamaican hot sauce in her purse if, in case, she needed to ward off an attack. Well, we all know about Kim Kardashian in her Paris hotel room. And there was the time Spielberg won a restraining order against a stalker who claimed this fabulous director planted a mind-controlling microchip inside this person's brain. Claudia Schiffer, visiting her mother in Germany, had a four-foot naked man riding around their garden on a bicycle. This I don't know myself, this I read. The man even rang their bell. The police couldn't nail him because of some quirky German law. Seems this little guy was selling postcards he'd actually made. Translation, it meant he was an actual performance artist going about his business in the pursuit of making a living, even though he was naked and riding around a person's garden on a bicycle. Authorities could not even arrest him. Okay, let me tell you that these days making a Western in our rough, tough, wild West is not such a good idea. Besides Alec Baldwin, there was Idris Elba. He started one in New Mexico 
at early stages of the pandemic. He arrived on the set of The Harder They Fall. He hugged cast members Regina King, Zazie Beetz, Delroy Lindo. Then his test came back. He says, The second day after I met everyone, hugged everyone, I'm then told I had COVID. This was at our beginning. I emailed each cast member, and I was like, Man, what do I say? I'm sorry. We were all terrified. These were unknowns at this early juncture. Everyone then wrote me back, Dude, we got your back. Chill. You're going to be all right. Don't worry. But, he says, I got myself emotional because I thought I was going to die. My daughter is 19. This film changed her life. She saw historical figures, stories about black folk. She'd never had any consciousness of them. We'd been ignored in the Western genre. So now we'll teach the world some history they might never have known. You know, I just had a thought. I rarely have one, but I just had one. Not everyone we worship on TV or in the movies began as a big-time big shot. Whoopi worked in a mortuary. She put makeup on the body. Brad Pitt made commercials for Pringles. Johnny Depp had a music career. Jeremy Renner from Hurt Locker, he was a makeup man in department stores. Me, I was a model. I was actually crowned, ready, Miss Bagel by the Brooklyn Better Bagel Bakers Association. This doesn't come up often in conversation. I just felt like telling it to you. Courtney Cox studied architecture at Mount Vernon College for a year. Paul Simon went to Brooklyn Law. Ashton Kutcher was set to become a genetic engineer. Listen, at age five, Robert Downey Jr. played a puppy in a film his father made. Mila Kunis was selling glitter hair. I don't know. It was for Barbie. How you make Barbie's hair glitter, this I don't know, but that's what she did. Ben Affleck, before he started examining Jennifer Lopez's various parts, he was into Middle Eastern studies. With Lisa Kudrow, it was research biology. She was studying at Stanford, and she said, quote, In college, I castrated 21 rats. Listen, Neil Diamond has a, had a fencing scholarship, and I said Brad Pitt was doing what he was doing, but I forgot to tell you, he advertised for a food store in general. He was inside a sandwich board. And that's it, kids.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 